Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Welcome to the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about autism and community safety, stalking versus inappropriate social skills. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today, I have returning Dr. Kim Spence. Dr. Spence uses she, her pronouns and has served as the coordinator of educational and training programs for the Center of Autism and Related Disabilities, or CARD, at the University of Central Florida since 1999 and as the clinical director of autism support services for specialized treatment and assessment resources, which is a private forensic practice, since 2017. She has lectured nationally and internationally regarding treatment, specialized therapeutic intervention, and the creation of specialized sexuality education programs for individuals with autism spectrum disorders, or ASD, for over 20 years. So Dr. Spence, thank you so much for joining us once again on the podcast. Good morning, Emily. Thank you for having me. And I also have returning Joelle and Ravel. Joellen uses she, her pronouns and is the Victim Service Center program director who oversees the advocacy, therapy, and forensic nursing department. She is a licensed clinical social worker with over 20 years of experience in clinical and administrative oversight. So Joellen, thanks for coming back onto the podcast once again. It's a pleasure. I think it's your third time actually. So so thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so as a brief introduction, previously we have had both of you, Joellen and Dr. Spence, on talking about autism and relationships, which for those who have not already tuned in for, I highly recommend listening to. We learned a lot there. Um, and when we were actually planning that podcast, we realized there was so much more to talk about regarding autism spectrum disorders. Uh, some things we discussed were ASD individuals being at risk for exhibiting stalking behaviors as well as staying in abusive relationships. So therefore, in this episode, uh, we're going to explore the legal definition of stalking, what makes individuals with ASD more likely to engage in this behavior, why might individuals with ASD stay in abusive relationships, 
the importance of boundaries and communication and how resources like the VSC can help support victims of stalking and intimate partner violence. So we have a pretty packed um, podcast today. So with that in mind, Dr. Spence, I was hoping that you would be able to, once again, for those um, who may not have listened to the other podcasts and also just to have a nice uh, framework to start off with. Um, if you could just give us a brief overview of autism again with a stronger focus on its spectrum. Absolutely, Emily. Autism is a bio-neurological developmental disorder. And essentially what that means is this is a disorder that affects the way an individual perceives the world, understands the world, and interacts socially with other people. Essentially, having autism means that you have difficulty with your communication skills in social situations. So you often have a difficult time understanding the meaning behind a communication, a verbal communication somebody may be having with you. And you also have difficulty, and this is by definition for diagnosis, interpreting and understanding the facial cues or nonverbal cues a communicative partner may give you in social interactions. So there's a great deal of difficulty and this has to do with essentially the brain wiring and people with autism, the brain structurally is very similar to their neurotypical peers. However, the wiring of the brain and several specific areas um, have some differences in some abnormal connectivity um, or abnormal development. And so what this means is in social engagements, um, whether it's leisure activities, whether it's in relationships, whether it's at school, individuals who are on the spectrum have a lot of difficulty um, making judgments or having insight about other people when they're communicating. They have a great deal of difficulty um, understanding pragmatic language. And pragmatic language essentially is when we communicate with one another, we often use slang or we say things like, hey, Emily, how's it going? And really, I don't, my expectation in saying that to you would not be for you to list every single thing that's happening in your life. It's really just to say, how are you right in this moment? And when you're on the spectrum, you don't always understand specifically uh, those very clear communications socially that other people uh, probably don't have any trouble with and picking up on the facial expression or the conveyance. And when we talk about the spectrum, um, this, I want to be clear, is a very vast, the spectrum is a vast place in terms of the way people present diagnostically. So we have all different types of presentations of autism. I work with people with autism who are more significantly impaired or what we call level three. Currently in the DSM, the system of uh, the leveling system to talk to severity is level one, level two, and level three. Now, we have people that are more significantly impaired and maybe not verbal. We have people that are moderately impaired, so they maybe have oh, 
usable social skills and communicative skills, but maybe don't understand um, things in the big picture as far as what may be conveyed to them by a communicative partner or what the actual intention of that communicative partner may be. And then I have folks I work with who uh, they're extremely intelligent and they have decent social skills, but sometimes they struggle with um, understanding when it's their turn to talk or understanding when they say something that may be offensive to other people. So this is a disorder um, that occurs very frequently. The current prevalence for children is one in 54. So for every 54 people, we have one person, children, so this is 18 and under. Now adults, friends, is one in 45. So this is a high occurring disorder. Uh, historically, we've, we've not thought about that. And thankfully, over the years with research, uh, the Centers for Disease Control's uh, monitoring systems, we've come to understand this is a high prevalence disorder. And we know that uh, this is a chronic lifelong condition. And we can help people with understanding, developing better language, better social skills. But the, the, the clear point here being that the presentation by one person, if I, if I had 10 people in front of me with autism, the presentation by one is not going to be the same as the other. So socially, um, these folks are individuals just like we are. And we are three women who are committed in our field and we have some similarities. The way we present is different because of our families of origin, our life experience, and any specific therapeutic interventions we may have received or people working with us to help us understand how the world works in general. So these are brain-based disorders, and these are disorders that primarily affect males. The ratio is about four to one in terms of diagnosis. We know that women are, are still to this day are underdiagnosed, which is very unfortunate, but the challenging, uh, I would say the most challenging things that impact people who are on the spectrum uh, are their ability to manage relationships and to understand uh, social intentions by others or communications by others. Um, and they, in general, have a pretty difficult time uh, keeping friends, making friends, keeping friends. And I know we're going to talk more about that, but I, I think that's a good just quick snapshot. I wanted to also bring up from our last podcast, I don't know if we went into it, but there are some individuals with ASD who might be nonverbal. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. About 40% of people who have autism will not develop spoken language. Now, we work with them to utilize what's called alternative or augmentative communication. So using either a technological device, a cell phone, there are different programs and apps that we use. Some individuals use uh, what's called PECS, which is it's a whole communication system, picture exchange communication, where they, they use actual either digital pictures or static images to communicate their thoughts, feelings, or what's happening. So a percentage of people will not develop that verbal language. Um, and dramatically speaking, for the remainder of people who even have verbal language and have autism, part of the disorder is having that communicative difficulty. So they have trouble receptively. So how language is coming in and being processed by the brain. 
and expressively. So even though they may actually be verbal and have verbal skills, they typically have a great deal of difficulty. It takes them longer to process uh, questions. And, and if they're stressed out, it might take them even longer. It's kind of a, a delay in being able to process spoken language. And if, if I could just kind of add to that, because I, I think what you were saying, Dr. Spence, first of all, thank you for that overview. I think it's super important because um, we're constantly learning as an agency, as just as a community, more and more about uh, autism as a whole and the individuality of individuals who have autism. And I was thinking a lot as I was planning for this podcast about our current world of being separated as a result of COVID and use of more digital formats for communication and just even with texting and the increased use of emojis. And I was um, thinking, wow, how challenging must it be for an individual who is autistic to understand what certain things that are not communicated verbally mean, or even when they are communicated verbally, you know, for example, have you ever got a text and there was a, an image after it and you're not clear, like, is this, is this a smiley face? Are they sad? Are they happy? And I thought about that and I realized, is that what the world of someone with autism is all the time when we're talking, when we're seeing someone from across the room and they're making a facial gesture? Is it the not knowing clearly what the person's words are versus what the intent of the words are. So I don't know, Dr. Spence, if, if you've talked um, with any of your uh, clients or colleagues about use of emojis when it comes to digital, digital text and digital communication, but I know that it definitely does speak to this idea of stalking and communication and level of comfort in receiving or sending messages. Any thoughts on that? That's a fantastic point, Joellen. And and to that end, I I want to share. I w I was doing a training last night uh, with a group of adults uh, with autism, and we were talking actually about this very idea of texting and the kinds of messages, either through spoken language or texting, text communication, and emojis. And so I was asking them specifically um, how they texted people and were they aware um, of the differences if, for example, I write something in all caps, would that be different than putting it in, in you know, there's different texting language, if you will, um, you know, so sometimes people don't write out every single word, but, understanding that if you put something in all caps, if you put something with a bunch of exclamations and then certain emojis um, convey, it changes the actual message you're sending. And some of them were a little surprised to hear that. Um, I then began asking them, um, are there emojis? We were talking about emojis you would send to a friend, emojis you might send to a romantic partner, emojis you would send to somebody you were interested in, but maybe had not been on a date with but you know how would you use the emojis and we were practicing and it was really surprising to me that you know so some of them would start right off with 
a kissy face or the little face with the heart, you know, the hearts in the eyes. And I said, well, let's talk about that because if you're interested in a person and they don't really know you, that might come across a little too forward or that might make someone feel that you're a little overzealous. And we discussed that. And to kind of back to your point, uh, Joellen, um, we were talking about perception. And often when when somebody who doesn't have autism is talking where we're we're assuming that using my slang language or my everyday language uh, for example I might say something like um, oh this this day just can't get any better and you all hear that and you know that I'm being sarcastic and I'm probably implying that my day's been a little difficult to date but when a person with autism hears that, they're taking it at face value very literally, and then they're responding back to that or may respond to that literally. And so this is really an area where when you have autism, regardless of the level, it's, it is challenging um, thinking about how you're coming across to others. And the, the training I was doing last night was very specific to being cautionary about not being coming across too forward, not saying things that might scare someone. And a lot of these guys were really shocked that um, an emoji could scare potentially someone. And I said, well, if that person doesn't know you and doesn't know you're a nice person, they might think you're some creepy McCreeperston. They don't they don't know. And Absolutely. if all they're, all they're getting is a bunch of emojis and you're sending 50 text messages and they're not responding, that the message that conveys in and we talked a good bit about that i think it would be you know when you think of pragmatics versus semantics in language you know i almost wish there was an emoji library to kind of say here is the image here is the definition and here's how it may be used in a sentence because it's super confusing just this you know when you think of generationally usage but for those who you know, don't have the skills to kind of pick up on what is being said, it could be very difficult and can unwind into an even worse situation. Because if there's a perception that, you know, someone sending a little huggy thing means, oh, we're moving from friendship to intimacy. Um, and really it's just an appreciation and a little hug. That is a huge challenge. And it's an unfortunate challenge that um, could lead to some criminal charges if the course progresses in, um, in a certain way. Well, that's such yeah. a great point, Joellen. That's such a, we, we talked about that last night. And one of the things I asked them, I said, so if you're just communicating with a friend, are there certain emojis you're allowed to use? And so we made an electronic bank and we talked about that and I said, so if you're just a friend now, if you want to date somebody and so we practice using that, but I, I think that's such a fantastic point. And Joellen, I think you should invent an app to do that. We really need it. I think that you would probably be great at spearheading it and I would support it in every way. Well, you heard it here, folks. We're going to make an app. So I look forward to that. <laughs> but speaking of those, um, First off, wonderful points. I love the talk about emojis. I think that that could be a completely different podcast as well. It's it's very a, a new complicated thing actually, um, and how we communicate in our everyday lives, especially now during COVID. Um, but but speaking of criminal charges, like you were mentioning, Joellen earlier, I wanted to bring up now 
Oh, if you could share a little bit about the legal definition of stalking so we can kind of have um, uh, some ground uh, framework um, as we move forward in this conversation. Absolutely. So according to Florida's criminal law, stalking is defined as when someone willfully, intentionally, maliciously, and repeatedly follows, harasses, or cyber stalks another person. And this falls under the Florida statute 784.048. And for the purposes of this conversation, what is harassment? And so that's to engage in the course of conduct directed at a specific person, which causes substantial emotional distress to that person and serves no legitimate purpose. So it falls under um, the crime type of assault battery and culpable negligence. And I will say um, there are serious implications to someone who is charged and convicted of stalking. And that goes from a misdemeanor to a felony level. Did you want me to share a bit about what those um, charges could be in terms of what the sentence could be? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Thank you. Absolutely. So One of the things that's important to know is an individual who may get charged with stalking, obviously it is law enforcement who have to investigate and through their investigation, turn a case over to the state attorney. And from there, there will be a decision on whether or not filing charges could lead to a conviction. And so if that was to happen and an individual was tried and convicted, they, they could be Uh, convicted on charges of a misdemeanor, which would be a first degree misdemeanor, which is punishable by being um, sentenced up to one year and a $1,000 fine. Um, If the case involves any credible threats to a person to cause fear of harm or fear of death, that would rise to a third degree felony with a potentially five year sentence and up to $5,000 in fines. Got it. Thanks for bringing all of that up. And, you know, when you talk about stalking, um, it's also important to bring up the fact that it can happen within intimate partner relationships too. So I wanted to see if you would be able to talk a little bit more about um, kind of the complications that, you know, people who find themselves being victims of stalking in intimate partner relationships, do they, do they even know that they're being stalked? That's a great question. It's a great point. And, you know, whether or not the person's autistic or not, when it comes to stalking, there is a level of sophistication in terms of severity of stalking that, that may happen. And so an individual who may be the victim of stalking Um, may be harassed through text messages or a Facebook following and a Facebook post um, or literally like physically like showing up to a person's place of work or school when they weren't asked or or invited or permitted to be there. Um, But then it also can be extremely increased where, you know, somebody may choose to hire a private investigator to stalk someone to get details where they um, record them, like they, they put a video camera in their home or their place of work without knowing, 
or they attach a, a GPS device to a vehicle. So the levels of stalking could be widely spread and very much dangerous and increase with severity. Now, as it relates to not necessarily knowing any of those things that I mentioned in terms of hitting cameras or you know somebody um, stalking someone's social media, the individual may not know. I mean, this happens in, in relationships, whether they're intimate, whether they're friendships, even family systems relationships, people um, are able to look into the lives of other individuals. It's the repeated excessive attempts that could be harassing or seen as harassing that may rise to the level of being deemed stalking. And unfortunately, if someone has autism, whether they're the victim or the perpetrator of it, we need to consider that as well, because a person who is perpetrating with autism may not even realize that their actions are criminal. And an individual who's a victim who is on the spectrum may not even be able to realize and understand that these actions are happening to them, but their parent or their guardian or a loved one may see the signs and may have to act on their behalf. I really appreciate you breaking all that down. Um, and, you know, as we move forward in this conversation, I think a really important thing that we should bring up are boundaries and communication. Um, and so with that being said, at the VSE, um, I'm the education coordinator. So one of the things that I do is I go out and do trainings, uh, just like Dr. Spence, on different things in an effort to prevent violence in the community. And one of those trainings is our healthy relationships training that we have. And it goes over very specifically boundaries and the importance of clear communication of those boundaries. Um, and so I wanted to kind of open up the dialogue of talking about the importance of and the rights of people when it comes to making boundaries. Um, and I don't know if there's anything you wanted to start off with that conversation, Joellen. Uh, thank you, Emily. I think it's super important to understand that, you know, as an agency, as VSC, you know, as the education coordinator, when we go out or you go out and train individuals, typically, you know, adolescent age, there is a challenge in that we as a society, as parents, as school officials, as community service providers, we're not typically training on what to expect, what's healthy, what's appropriate. So the fact that VSC has trainings, I think is crucial. And I think that many people who are now in their adulthood, unfortunately have never received that instruction and that guidance and they're maybe parents of someone with autism or maybe a teacher of someone and don't even know those, those boundaries themselves because it's not a part of the normal conversation that adults have with children. You know, that a lot of stuff happens very young where it's about like sharing and, and things of that nature. And then once someone goes into actually school aged years, things kind of drastically shift to the academics. And we, as a society, would be better served if we focused a bit more on social interactions, interpersonal skills, boundaries, relationship building, because those are the things that are going to be uh, long lasting into adulthood and are going to have great impact on others. So 
I really want to kind of start and just say we should never assume that individuals know what healthy boundaries are. We should never assume that individuals even know what appropriate social behavior is because just like Dr. Spence mentioned in terms of the frequency of autism, many individuals have not been diagnosed, will never be diagnosed. And the idea that they're going to sit in a training and grasp concepts that are brought up, it, it might be a huge struggle. And so I just wanna make sure we're not assuming that individuals know these skills or ever have been introduced to the concept of these skills. When you also think about poor um, relationships that children, adolescents may already witness in their family system, you know, whether it's a single parent family, whether it's a domestic violence situation or there's abuse, those, so, those things are all learning lessons and very negative learning lessons about what relationships mean, what boundaries are. And so environmentally, how people are brought up also impacts healthy relationships and understanding of what's appropriate versus what is not appropriate. Definitely. Yeah. Dr. Smith, did you want to jump in? Yeah. I just, you know, sitting here and listening to, to these points, um, I recently spoke to a, a person who is quite well known in the autism world. And this person is a tremendous advocate and she has a daughter who's in college and she called me and she says, you know, I know you know about these kinds of things. So I just want to run this past you. And her daughter has no issues. She's at college doing great. Everything's good. However, um, the daughter has a friend and this kid has autism and he's very obsessed with her daughter. And they've known this for years and they've, you know, kind of felt like, you know, he has autism. He doesn't quite get it. And it's just so and so and it's not. But over the last six months, it has elevated to the point where. Uh, the daughter had to block him on social media. And then she was telling me she had to, my friend had to block him on social media. Well, then he started showing up at her classes at college, uh, tried to, I mean, it, it escalated dramatically. And my friends, my friend said to me, well, you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings. And I, and I said, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Um, we need to take a step back here. And this is not the first time I've heard a story like this. Um, and so from the perspective of somebody with autism who's well over a line in terms of engaging in behavior that is not socially acceptable, is dangerous, you know, there's so many things we need to think of. And in the autism community, um, people that are victims, I think, don't often realize they're actually victims or how dangerous this behavior can become. Now, because I'm in a forensic practice, I've worked on cases where stalking escalated to a homicide. So I know that that is an outcome. I am, I have worked on cases and am working currently on cases. So my perspective is probably a little more dramatic maybe than some others, but I have said to many people, you need to treat it all the same way. If you physically don't feel safe, if there are repeated communications, repeated messages, and those escalate, we need to handle that in the same way. And, and we need to help the person who has autism understand what they're doing, you know, so if it's more related to autism and being obsessed with something or someone, but intervening with them appropriately, but also taking precautionary measures. Um, 
And so my friend and I, we talked about that. And I said, I think the police need to get involved. And yes, he has autism. And and I've spent my entire adult career supporting people and loving people with autism. And it's not that I want to vilify this or I want them to be in trouble, but we need to keep everybody safe. And, and, and an individual who's escalating in these behaviors, we need to help them. We need to help their family. We need to have a safety plan. We need to have you know a community-based support to help everybody involved understand what parts of that are not okay and how to help that individual who's you know texting somebody hundreds of times a day or showing up to uh, where they go to school where they live etc and help them understand how to get their needs met um, that this is not an okay way to act um, and, and that the severity of it, we don't want to ignore it and go, well, you know, I know this person has autism and they don't get it. That's not an acceptable way of dealing with it. It's, it's in many cases, it, it doesn't stop. It doesn't go away. And maybe that person might stop with your daughter or your son, but they're going to move on to the next person left unabated uh, without intervention. And that concerns me a great deal. Absolutely. I, I thank you for bringing those points up because there's a level of safety that we have to be aware of. And I, I completely agree in terms of, you know, there's a tendency when individuals are autistic to kind of be preoccupied um, and root, like have a routine or a particular way of doing things. And that could be seen as obsessive in some regards. And like Dr. Spence mentioned, you know, that particular, you know, blocking someone and, and creating a plan. And I do want to talk about safety plans a bit more, but, you know, deferring that kind of, okay, this individual has rejected me and that moving on, you know, we're putting others at risk potentially that, okay, they're not bothering me. So he'll bother someone else, not my problem anymore. When really it's about how does the individual learn, understand, self-manage, um, be clear that this is against the law and make that very clear that, you know, this is crossing the line. And I think society needs to do a better job in, in making those messages get out there um, in a clear way that people understand that, no, you cannot do that. Just because there's accessibility to individuals in all of these means digitally does not mean that you could use those to harass um, and really emotionally impact the receiver of that information. Um, I did want to say, like, when it comes to a safety plan, and Dr. Spence's example was, you know, an individual who was uh, typical, not autistic, but I think we have to think about who is being stalked, because if the individual is being stalked is um, autistic, and we want to make a safety plan for them, we, we really need to make it extremely individualized it has to be strengths-based. It has to include information that's super realistic and achievable because we can't just set up a, a safety plan for one individual and expect that it's gonna work for another. Um, and it may need to include resources like family members or loved ones to kind of implement and support that process as well. 
I, I agree 100%. I was speaking with a young lady yesterday who uh, about this very topic. And when we had initially intervened, um, she is a young lady who has autism and she was in a relationship with a young man who has autism and things were great until they weren't and they broke up and she wanted to be broken up and the young man didn't. And so he began stalking her and several agencies became involved. I became involved and basically we, we made a safety plan for her and I outlined for her. So if he contacts you on text, don't respond. And I wrote a script and I said, if he, if he responds, do this. Um, but interestingly, when I was talking to her yesterday, um, she was lamenting to me, well, he's sending her Facebook messenger messages and i hadn't articulated that in the plan i had written text email phone call i did not write the social media platforms and, and my error and uh, all of us who are making these plans but people who are on the spectrum they're so literal and we need to try you know nothing's perfect but we need to try to take into account um she was doing exactly what i told her she was not responding to his text if he texted her friends she told her friends, please don't tell me, I don't want to hear about it. You know, so we had, we thought we had made it really, really comprehensive. Um, but then of course he was continuing to pursue her and you, and you know, was sending several messages and she said, I'm so annoyed with this and he won't stop. And I thought, oh no, you know, we didn't put that on the list. So, you know, even though it seemed to be really clear for us, you know, it is so critically important to take a lot of things into account and to make, you know, make it very specific because I conceptually, um, and this is something that a lot of the people I support with autism struggle with, which is when I say something, I need them to apply it and what we call generalize it. You know, so if I say, Emily, Joellen, this means don't respond, you're going to probably automatically understand that means social media, texting, cell phone, you're going to apply that. But people with autism, they have problems with generalizing information into other settings or intuiting or taking information they know and applying it generally in different situations. And this is a good example of where she wasn't able to generalize the basic precept, which was don't communicate with him. If he communicates with you, let someone know. Uh, so just so important. Absolutely. And that's why there's a whole, you know, profession of applied behavior analysis where individuals work with um, individuals on the autism spectrum and teach self-management skills in multi-step process. And it takes a long time to develop the capacity to be able to do these things. And we can't expect that through one training that we do on healthy relationships, that those concepts are going to be absorbed. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything that you're saying makes a uh, complete sense. And I really appreciate it. It definitely has, I'm learning a lot from this. Definitely. Um, Dr. Spence, I wanted to ask, I know we kind of went over kind of specific things, but I didn't know if you wanted to bring up anything else onto why, or rather what makes those with ASD more susceptible to engaging in this type of behavior of crossing boundaries and stalking. It's a, it's a great question, Emily, and, and, and obviously 
every individual who engages in these types of behavior is motivated by something different. And there are some similarities that we see. And I would say in general, there are people who have autism, as we've discussed, have very have a very difficult time understanding social, appropriate social interactions with others. And if you're very socially isolated, you don't have a circle of friends who's going to call you out when you're acting foolish or you're saying things that are not going to go well for you. So if you don't have that, what we call a protective factor, where you have a large circle of friends who gives you input. And let's say too, if for many families, and this is not intended to be disrespectful to families, but in many families, families just don't know what to do with behavior that is inappropriate, is embarrassing. And for some families, they get, they'll get very upset and say, well, don't do that again, or they ignore it, or they're dealing with so many other things that they just think, oh, that's just Johnny and that's, you know, and they don't address it. And so what happens over time is that that behavior is tolerated and it's accepted. It's not corrected. We don't, there's no intervention provided for it. So then that person has years to practice that inappropriate behavior. So I don't have the protective layer of, of some friendships um, in my familial unit. And if I have a, only a single parent at home or maybe a guardian who's in charge of taking care of me, I'm not getting feedback with respect to that. And then let's say I, I, I begin a relationship or I have a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a romantic partner. And this is the only time I've ever had this kind of relationship. And often these folks have not had uh, meaningful sexuality training. They've not had meaningful or comprehensive instruction about different types of friendships and boundaries. And so they get into a relationship and it may be the only one they've ever had. And they're 16, 18, 20, 25. And this is the first person they've kissed. This is the first person who they feel all these wonderful things. And, and, and most of us have experienced this. And when it doesn't go right or there's a breakup, it is so, in my opinion, significantly more catastrophic for them. And we see a lot of instances of stalking in the aftermath of these breakups. Or um, I also see a lot of instances where an individual who's on the spectrum, male or female, is very interested in someone and they just don't have the appropriate social skills to engage in communicating flirting kind of putting it out there that I want to they don't they don't have that set of skills and it's not that they're trying to stalk the person they're just infatuated they really like this person but they don't realize how their behavior is coming across because they're very um you know enamored by this person and they think this person is very physically attractive and emotionally attractive and they're just not aware of the perception of how it comes across. So in there's several different, I think, ways that people can fall into engaging in this behavior and in different, you know, Joellen mentioned severity. So there's differing levels of severity. I've also worked on cases where uh, individual put a tracker. Uh, he was very enamored with a woman and he put a tracker on her car. Uh, he put surveillance equipment to monitor her um, in different ways. And when she, when she spurned his attempts to have a relationship, uh, he became very violent. 
So um, also that young man, unfortunately, has significant mental health issues. Uh, so we know that having both, if you have autism and a mental health issue, that's probably going to increase your risk to be somebody who might engage in this type behavior. Um, but there's a lot of different reasons. But in my experience, those are the, those are the instances where I've seen folks uh, get down a bad path, as it were. If I can just um, add to what you were saying, Dr. Spence, I really appreciate um, you bringing up the point that sometimes negative behaviors are reinforced or ig intentionally ignored by caregivers. Um, and there's kind of like this excuse, oh, he has autism. Um, I think what we can do, everyone should do who's listening, is if you're with someone who has autism, you know them, you care about them, we need to focus on supporting appropriate behaviors, reinforcing appropriate behaviors, because individuals with autism in generally, they already have enough trouble expressing themselves emotionally. And a lot of time expression comes out through behavior. And I don't believe that these behaviors are, are intended to be um, disruptive, but it just, it's reinforced in a way and ignored as Dr. Spence was saying. So doing a better job in reinforcing positive behaviors and teaching in the moment better behaviors is really important to someone who's a parent or a caregiver or a sibling of an individual with autism, just for their own benefit going forward. I love that you brought that up, Joelle. And, and while you were talking, Dr. Spence, I, I wanted to kind of think about, um, you know, what could the VSC do really to support victims who were stalked by someone? Um, Joelle, and I know you talked a little bit about creating a safety plan and, and it was really um, interesting hearing you, Dr. Spence, about the safety plan that you created for for one of your, uh, for one of the people that you worked with, but uh, Joellen, how could the VSC support victims uh, of stalking? Absolutely. So Emily, one of the things we do as an agency for victims of crime is to make sure that we share with victims what their rights are. So just at the basic of, of literally providing a victim rights pamphlet, which provides a lot of content um, to victims about what they're entitled to under Florida law, that would be the first thing I want to make sure any victim would receive. And because of the nature of working with someone who's autistic and knowing that some individuals um, may need the support of a caregiver, the agency is able to provide services to loved ones of victims. So if the individual themselves is not able to understand the concepts, of their rights, we would definitely make sure we would share that with their, their guardian, guardian or their, their caregiver. I would also say um, when it comes to emotional support, the agency can provide that directly to someone with autism or their family members. However, we would really wanna look to make sure um, and assess to make sure that if we're providing a service to someone with autism, that they have the ability to receive this service. So like Dr. Spence mentioned earlier, you know, it's such a spectrum and some individuals are nonverbal, some have very high IQs. So we would just want to make sure by knowing the information about this individual developmentally, how old they are, um, what's their IQ perhaps, um, what information we receive from their guardian about their previous experience, 
um, in counseling to know whether or not we can actually engage in ongoing dialogue. We at the agency, we don't have a specialized individual who is um, super trained on working with individual individuals who are autistic, but we also know that the frequency of autism is high and there is definitely a potential that we are already serving individuals who are autistic through counseling and therapy, but we're not necessarily aware or we don't know yet, or there, there is some concern or we suspect it that they might have autism. Um, and we might kind of probe to get more information from them or suggest maybe they get um, seen by a provider who can diagnose them. So at the core of it, providing information, providing options, letting them know how to navigate the criminal justice system. I definitely want to speak to the fact that for stalking, though it is a criminal charge, there are some civil options that individuals can pursue. And that would be a, an injunction. And under Florida statute, there are five types of protective injunctions. And they are domestic violence, sexual violence, dating violence, repeat violence, and stalking. And in order to get an injunction for stalking, it would require at least two incidents of stalking or cyber stalking. The victim themselves or their guardian may be able to file the petition. The intention is to protect adults and any minor children they may have from further stalking. And if someone um, receives an injunction for stalking, they may be required to surrender any guns or ammunition as a protective factor. So that would be something that we would want to walk a victim through because it can be super overwhelming and intimidating. Um, the individual would need to kind of draft a petition of why they want to get an injunction. And in that process, they would really have to reflect back on what are the incidents that have happened and what was the emotional distress that it caused and how were they repeated. And then we would walk them through how to file um, and how to navigate the court. It is not us who decides it. It is a judge who decides on whether or not an injunction is going to be filed, whether it's going to be temporary until there's a hearing. Um, and some injunctions end up being permanent. Um, and then I would also just kind of like to share that connecting with other resources would be something as an agency we want to do. Because if someone needs specialized care, you know, we, we see that we are in an an individualized service provider, but we're not necessarily the be all and end all. We're not fully comprehensive that we have a specialty in working with individuals who are autistic. So if I encountered an individual who really needed enhanced care, I would probably defer to someone like Dr. Spence and find out what resources are available in the community to assist. Thank you so much for all of that great information. Um, yeah, the VSC is so good at working with our community partners and really just um, the advocates are there to support that person through that process of the justice system, of all of those things can, that can be really overwhelming. Um, so I really appreciate that. Dr. Spencer, do you have something you wanted to hop in on? I just wanted to add to what Joellen was saying, which is, is all really fantastic information, but in the context of supporting a victim, 
who is on the spectrum, regardless of where they're functioning, I think it's really important to the point that Joellen made about understanding local and community services. Um, we're here in the greater Orlando area, uh, which is for most people, if you're listening to this outside of Florida for any reason, um, is about a seven district catch. Um, and there are many resources specific to this community. There's the Center for Autism and Related Disabilities at UCF. Um, there are parent-based support groups. So I think it's important to um, help people understand whether they're the advocate that's supporting the victim or the agency, that if they need more specialized interventions. So all people who have autism are going to be different in their needs. Uh, some may need visually um, written support. Some might need a script for what they need to say. Some might need help in um, actually compiling their thoughts or their ideas. And so going to local providers that can help with that and, you know, having that understanding about the, the differences with autism. And, you know, one of the young ladies I've worked with for a long time, uh, she's very combative and it's just part of her personality. And um, she was victimized. And when I was sitting with her, uh, with a detective actually, um, she was just very rude and combative with him. And he kind of got upset and he's, you know, why are you upset with me? And, you know, and I had to pull him aside and say, listen, this is not about you. And she's not upset with you. This is just how she's typically presenting. And it's not a big deal. She's just not understanding all the language that you're using and she's getting flustered and that's kind of how she's responding. So I think it's important for people to understand the delays in processing and the, sometimes the delays in responding and what the translation might be. Um, and also this idea about comorbid mental health disorders, uh, we know that people who are on the spectrum universally have a greater number of comorbid mental health conditions. Uh, most commonly, these are going to be depression and anxiety. And we know that people with autism spectrum disorders are at a greater risk for suicide, at, in particular women, women who are on the autism spectrum. So I think when we think about a woman who has been victimized, who's on the spectrum, who may have a co-occurring mental health problem, that should be very prescriptive to an advocate or to an agency to say, this woman's going to need a high level of care and support and uh, post-incident going to need probably follow-along care for some amount of time. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It's, it's always really important um, to highlight the individuality of, of everyone's needs. Um, and that's why I love the VSC because um, really what we try to focus on is giving that individualized care and just like um, highlighting that everyone's different and their needs are different too. Um, kind of shifting the conversation a little bit more towards intimate partner violence. Um, we have seen through research that oftentimes people are stalked by their intimate partner. Um, so what would you say, Joellen, to someone who wants to stay with their partner who is stalking them or crossing boundaries? I think we have to be very realistic when it comes to stalking and thinking of it very much like domestic violence. Intimate partner stalking, like domestic violence, is a coercive control where one person attempts to exert power over another. And in this conversation, you know, I think when people um, think of individuals with autism, 
like we talked about earlier, there tends to be this sensitivity or this excuse for behavior that happens when we really need to ensure that there is a great potential that this can be very severe. And so when I would deal with someone, anyone who's in a situation that is threatening, intimidating, potentially violent, is to let them know what their options are and understand what their risks are. So if someone's living with someone and they're dealing with this, you would take a different course of action than someone who is not living with the perpetrator of the violence, whether stalking or escalated violence. So it'd be difficult to answer that question in general, but much more considering it individually. But as a provider, knowing that what we see on face value and what someone might say as a victim initially, it's it could be opening a Pandora's box. We have had victims who come in and they're, you know, expressing initially, oh, it's just this and this is really what's happening. But behind that curtain, it's excessive, it's repeated, it's increasing in severity. So building trust so that there is a greater potential of rapport so that information can be shared, a person can be open, opening up. And with more information, we can develop a better safety plan, some action steps, um, even meaning that new information allows us to realize, yes, you can get an injunction based on this. Or yes, we should contact law enforcement because this seems to be a criminal act. So I would say look at every situation individually and specifically and build trust so that the person feels supported. Because it's not easy for anyone, whether autistic or not. It's much more challenging for someone who's autistic to open up emotionally. So building rapport with that individual. Thank you so much, Joelle. And I really appreciate that. I'm kind of Keeping on that same topic, um, we have talked in the past about how those with ASD often experience social isolation. So, Dr. Spence, could you talk a little bit about how this could put those with ASD at risk for staying in abusive relationships? Yes. Yeah, so, this, and especially during uh, during these times of COVID and the pandemic, um, I definitely have a, a lot of concerns. I, I've come across many, many people uh, with autism, male, female, um, who are in relationships that are extremely unhealthy. And some of it is related to social, isoliza- social isolation sorry, I can't say that word today, which we've talked about. And some of it is is related to they may not have had a good example from their familial unit. Um, And then there's other situations where I work with people that they've never been in a relationship and they're very desperate to be in a relationship and they'll pretty much tolerate anything, uh, physical violence, sexual violence, um, emotional emotionally abusive words or put downs. Um, I know the group I was speaking to last night, uh, which is about 35 adults, um, all with different different levels of, of autism. And one of the things, you know, we were talking about was this idea that if there's something that you don't like, um, 
that's one thing. But if you're uncomfortable, that's a whole nother thing. And that's a whole nother idea. And for some of them, they were very surprised to hear me say that you can make that choice. If, if that person is saying mean things to you, that person is calling you names, that person is, uh, in one instance, pinching pinching them, uh, leaving bruises on them, and under the, the pretext that it was funny, um, they said, oh, well, I, I have a choice. I can tell them to stop or I can. And I said, well, of course you can. You know, if, if someone's, you don't like it, you have a choice. And I feel like this is not maybe just an autism issue, but I feel like there are many people who feel like at all costs, I'm going to stay in this relationship. I, I love this person and, and maybe they do, but don't seem to understand that those unhealthy boundaries are dangerous, that if a person is physically harming you, emotionally harming you, forcing you sexually to do things you don't want, um, in totality, that's not good for you as a person. And that is unhealthy. And I, and a lot of the folks I work with, I think, they want to have it and and they also don't understand what it is you know they've not experienced it anywhere else they don't maybe have a label to call it or i guess this is just goes along with it if i don't have friends to bounce it off of then i i guess this is just part of it and 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 it sounds you know to say it even out loud as i say it to you all but i've heard it so many times well you know asking a young man a, a young man i work with i said where did you get this bruise his horrible bruise on his chest. And he said, well, whenever my girlfriend's mad, this is where she punches me. And I said, I said, honey, what, why is she punching you? And he's like, well, when she gets mad at me or she's having a bad day. And I said, does she punch you anywhere else? And he says, no, this is just the spot she punches me. And I said, well, that's not okay. And we need to talk about that, you know, but to, it had never occurred to him. And the only reason I saw him is because we were on an outing where everybody was at a pool and it was a substantial bruise and knowing him, having known him for 20 years, I, I said, what, what's happening? You know, he, he, he never thought to ask. He taught, he spoke to me about the girlfriend glow, you know, I love my girl, you know, and, and we, we had to have a, a pretty long talk about that. That is uh, really um, a powerful story that you shared there, Dr. Spence. Um, and it, I think it really does highlight kind of this whole conversation on the importance of talking more about this, talking about boundaries, talking about um, communication, and then highlighting that, you know, resources like CARD um, and like other community partners can really come together and and help support people who really need um, that guidance um, so that we can prevent things like that from happening. So I, I really am grateful that you were there and able to contact uh, him about that. Um, but that was a really powerful story that you shared. So thank you for sharing it. Kind of as like a final question and, and a little bit more about boundaries once <laughs> once again, um, how can the VSC Joellen help support those who have had their boundaries crossed? I think it's a matter of just being able to, like I mentioned earlier, being able to provide a safe, non-biased space where individuals can share and disclose and understand what the risks are, what their options are, um, legally, civilly, and educate and connect to other resources and 
individuals in the community that may be able to provide additional support and safety. I, I feel like we could do a whole entire podcast just about boundaries and the difficult thing as it relates to boundaries, which, you know, I think in general, when we're talking about stalking or victimization, clearly there's difficulty with the victim maybe being able to understand and assert healthy boundaries and for a perpetrator, whether they understand they're violating them or if there's somebody who has autism and they're unknowingly, um, that's an issue. But, you know, when we're, when I think about most of the people I've worked with over my career, um, and friends who have autism, um, who I've spent a lot of time with, you know, this idea about boundaries, it's so blurry and it's so it, it's I, I hate to say it because it sounds cliche you know that it's it's just it's is it's very muddy for them and for them if in one situation for example um, I'm able to uh, hug someone and and hug them or kiss them or do you know do that and it's accepted tolerated and nobody says anything so i hug my aunt or i hug my teacher or i you know i kiss them on the hand or i kiss them on the face and that be and that's acceptable and it's not corrected and you know what generally happens is so young kids will engage in these behaviors and then as they get older you know it's fine when you're five it's when you're eight Definitely, we're going to start saying something when you're 10 or 12. But I've come into contact with so many people that are on the spectrum that this hasn't been, I'll use the word corrected. And they really clearly don't understand, well, the boundary I have with Dr. Kim is this, and the boundary I have with my teacher is this, and the boundary I have with my mom, because it, it's all the same for them. And unless they receive instruction about this is the way I can conduct myself at home. This is the way I can conduct myself at school. This is, and it's different in social skills. You know, these are social skills. They're complex and boundaries really fall within that auspice of social skills where it changes and it varies. And that's really difficult for individuals who are on the spectrum because they're going to kind of hit it, you know, like it's a nail and they're a hammer. They're going to do it the same way every time. And our job is to correct that and say, well, you can't hug people you don't know. You can't put your hands on people you don't know. And maybe that person is 26 years old. So they've had 25 years of practice, if you follow me, where they've engaged in this behavior and now it's become a problem. So we have to unring the bell and we have to provide intervention and suggestions and what to do instead. So it's this is such a, a big the boundaries issue is a big one. And, you know, I know Joellen touched on this earlier. And from my perspective, it's really challenging because within a familial unit, if families accept behavior and we can all agree it's there's different reasons that happens. But if certain behaviors are acceptable, for, for instance, texting somebody 300 times and being demanding. I want this. I want this. Pay attention. And if your family, you know, they're just exhausted and they're like, whatever, they're not going to deal with it. But then you don't learn the difference. You know, number one, you can't do that. But then I'm going to do that with somebody else because I just I ha it hasn't been corrected. While you're talking, Dr. Spence, I've realized um, kind of my own privilege when it comes to social interactions. 
um, as someone who doesn't suffer from ASD. Um, and so you're absolutely right. Boundaries are so, so complicated. I think they're still complicated, um, even for people who don't suffer from ASD. But the the fact that, yeah, I don't, I don't have to think about how, of course, my boundaries with my spouse and my boundaries with my mother and my boundaries with my teacher would be different, right? And so that's really, I've been reflecting on my own privilege when you were talking. So I really appreciate that. I just wanted to chime in very briefly. It's a good point you bring up, Emily, because the idea, like, let's take, for example, when we know someone may be uh, visually impaired or hearing impaired, sometimes it's very obvious they're wearing, a, a you know, something, an earpiece or they're using sign language. And so some messages are sent in different ways. There is nothing to say who is, you know, some individuals may have a, a bracelet on and say they're autistic or their parent, you know, has a bumper sticker or it's known someone has autism. But if we walk through the world and we just kind of consider everyone we interact with, whether it's at work, grocery store, just on the street, there's not a sign or, or, or something that is tattooed on someone to say that they're dealing with this. So we're using the same communication style we would use for someone who is able to receive information, that there's no sensory impairments. And it's a challenge because if we considered in life that maybe um, when we were, we peak our sensitivity, when we see someone with a seeing eye dog, or we see someone with a cane when they're blind, that we as an individual who's going to send messages, utilize a little bit more sensitivity and tactfulness in sending those messages. But that's not how it is with autism because we don't know. And unfortunately, people are receiving messages. We think we've communicated. We think we've shared what we wanted to share and it has not been received. So it's a very difficult um, endeavor we're dealing with, you know, as a parent with, to someone with autism, but as a provider who encounters individuals, you know, it's, it just goes back to treating an individual as they are, learning what works for them and using their strengths to build on. Such a such a good point, Joellen, and and just the reminder that autism is an invisible disability. So unless somebody is, you know, engaging in one of the hallmark characteristics, uh, flicking their hands or rocking back and forth or engaging in echolalia, you really don't understand or know that that's what's happening for them. So, you know, with other disabilities, you're able to see them visually and you automatically change your behavior and the mode or the way you interact with them. So that's definitely part of it. And further, so that person with autism, to go back to, they're not understanding what's said in the same way. And this idea about intentionality is really key, um, that we might be thinking we're very clear and we're using language that other people use. Uh, we are using our nonverbal cues and all the kinds of things that everybody else seems to understand. Um, but those by definition are not things that people with autism always understand because their brain is not processing information in the same way. So it's, it's just such an important point. Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful place to sign off. So I just want to thank you, the listener for listening to the victim service center podcast. 
The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so much, Joellen and Dr. Spence, for joining me once again on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you again. Thank you so much for being a part of it. It's always a great conversation.